Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. series and this series is all about inspiring saints and for a lot of us there's confusion around what a saint is or how you become a saint or is that even a thing we are not Roman Catholic who are most well known for their saints but we do have a concept of saints within Protestantism and Methodism specifically and it's important for us to recognize that one of the greatest gifts that God has given us outside of grace and forgiveness by Jesus' sacrificial love expressed on the cross is the fact that we are given the opportunity to allow who we are to be of service to the kingdom. That we can use our uniqueness, our special way of being in the world and seeing the world and interacting with it in order to show other people God's love grace, forgiveness, and presence. And so saints inspire that in us. But we are not a people who have the same mechanation for creating saints that our Roman Catholic siblings in Christianity have. And there are some very specific things about sainthood in the Roman Catholic Church. And so what I did was um, I brought with for you the catechism. This is uh, the belief book of the Roman Catholic Church. As you can see, it is rather large of biblical proportions in and of itself. And in here, it does talk about canonization of saints. It talks about how you can become a saint and what that means. So according to the Catholic Church, a saint is a title that is given to one who has been formally canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. Canonization is a formal process to declare someone worthy of veneration and imitation. So if people should give glory to God and bless God for a person's existence because of how they lived out their faith, and they can serve as inspiration for other Christians and how they might model their faith or live out their faith, or even just give them ideas for how they themselves can be the best disciple that they can be, then that would qualify you to be a saint. Now in the Methodist church, that's as easy as it gets. Congratulations, you can be a saint. Now, if you're Roman Catholic, it's not quite so easy. So I've broken it down into three steps for you. And here are basically the three steps. After you have been dead five years, there's a five-year waiting period. After you've been dead five years, step one is that the candidate of heroic virtue is recognized by the Pope as venerable. And that's when they receive the title of venerable. They are a venerable person who has done things that are worthy of being recognized at this point. So the Pope, there's only one of them at a time, has to recognize something that a regular Christian has done. That in itself is pretty commendable that the Pope would recognize what you have done. Step two is that the candidate has proven intercession and produced a miracle in order to be beatified and then receives the title blessed. So it's not enough that you've lived your life in, in accordance with the scriptures or that you've been able to be a very faithful, dedicated person that is worthy of being recognized for that, you have to produce a miracle. And a miracle 
is something that science cannot explain nor replicate. Not easy to do. And what it means by intercession is that someone had to invoke you, even after you've died, to intercede on their behalf, to petition God for them so that there might be a miracle. For instance, if you were a parent and you had a child who had an inoperable condition or an uncurable disease, then you might pray to someone to say, will you please pray to God with me and for me so that my child might be healed? And if miraculously your child was healed, then that would be part of the proof that would be taken to the Pope in order to see if you could be beatified. We don't have that in Methodism. Uh, most of us wouldn't like the first part, which is where there's actually a committee that goes through your life to make sure that you haven't done anything too shady. Most of us wouldn't be very happy with that piece of the, the, the process. But here on step two, um, you'd have to actually have a verifiable miracle attributed to you. Not easy to do, obviously. That's why there's not as many saints as we might expect. Now, step three is that the candidate produces a second miracle after they've been beatified. It's not enough to have one miracle. You have to now have another one. So after you're beatified, they have to have another process whereby which they can verify that you have continued to provide miracles. At this point, once it's been verified, you are now canonized and you receive the title of saint. Not an easy process. Fortunately, we're not Catholic. And so we don't have to worry about all of that. But it gives you a little bit of appreciation for people who have recently been declared saints in the Roman Catholic Church. That's a lot of wadiring in order to figure out whether or not you are worthy of the title. Now, there are some caveats to this. The requirements and the time frame can be waived for two different options. One is if you are a martyr, if you die for your faith, if you're persecuted because you are a Christian and you end up dying for your faith, then you can instantly become a saint. You don't have to go through all of that stuff. They will canonize you rather quickly. Um, that's why there was a whole plethora of saints that came in the early church because there was a lot of persecution and a lot of martyrdom. The other one is called special circumstances. If the sitting pope believes that there are special circumstances, then they can waive some of those. This has been done recently in our lifetime for Pope John Paul II, uh, his, his predecessor, um, had chosen him because he had had a, a wonderful religious life and believed that he would be a great candidate who then was affirmed in the papal selection. And then the one who came after him recognized Pope John Paul II's incredible work. A lot of people upon his death immediately started to invoke his name in prayers. And there were so many people that were attributing miraculous healings and other forms of earthly miracles to him that they decided not to wait five years. And within two years, Pope John Paul II was named a saint. The same uh, special circumstances happened for Mother Teresa, who did not have to go through the same waiting period that was mandatory because so many people knew of her, respected her, honored her, and were invoking her upon her death in their prayers because she had been incredibly effective in her earthly ministry. And so sainthood in the Roman Catholic world is something that it seems almost unattainable to most of us, right? I wouldn't begin to be able to tell you how to manifest a miracle. I have yet to manifest a miracle. But I also believe that sainthood is something that is meant to be approachable. 
Because we are given in the scriptures so many people who are just like you and I. They are very much human beings, prone to faults, bent to sinning, inclined to follow their own will unless they consciously think about it and choose to follow God's. And yet those people have managed to do things driven from their faith that changes the world. The Bible is full of these people. And so is Christian tradition, church history. It's filled with these people. And today I thought we'd begin with one that we don't always pay any attention to, and that is St. Joseph. So we've removed the nativity, but we still have our holy family here. We've got Joseph and Mary and Jesus. He's no longer a baby because he is growing. And by the start of Lent, we have to have him 30. So it's happening rather quickly. Um, he's aging very best. If you come in a couple weeks, he'll be a teenager. And so what we have is that we see a lot of times what I have here. Jesus is kind of in the forefront. We got Mary in close proximity. And then there's a guy kind of in the back. Right? Poor Joseph is kind of in the background. In fact, sometimes I have seen nativities where you're like, is that Joseph or a shepherd? He's kind of playing both parts. You're not even sure what's going on there. Joseph sometimes doesn't really get to have the attention that he should. Now, if you're used to reading the Christmas story as outlined in the scriptures, then most of the time you're probably reading the gospel account of Luke. Luke is the one that has the Annunciation, where Mary receives this visitation from the Archangel Gabriel, and there's the Magnificat in there, where she talks about how blessed and happy she is to be able to do this thing that God is asking for her. You have the wonderful evening where the baby is born, and the sky is filled with angels, and they sing this beautiful doxology to the terrified shepherds who then decide to come and check it out. That is classic Luke. That is not the story that you get in Matthew. Instead, you get a little bit of what I gave you today, which focuses less on the entire interaction with Mary and much more on Joseph. And that's because Joseph did something radical. Joseph was in a position to choose either following the established way of living your life, to fulfill the expectations of his family, and the requirements of his culture and his community, or he could completely turn his back on that and follow what God is asking. Most people, when confronted with those two realities, will go, I'm clearly misunderstanding if God wants me to go here and everything in the world is saying go this way. Perhaps I am confused. Perhaps I am you know, hearing voices and not attributing that correctly to God, but I am instead being dissuaded to do something that seems irrational, insane. And instead, Joseph was actually trying to navigate being a good Jew. In fact, in his culture, they had a practice whereby he was being betrothed <laughs> to Mary, and Mary was being betrothed to him. This was a negotiated marriage. This is not something where he walked out to the well one day and went, she's pretty, let me talk to dad. That's not how it happened. Instead, in their cultural arrangement, as Joseph approached 30, the age in which he should be beginning to take over the familial responsibilities, meaning not just caring for himself and any spouse and children he had, but also caring for the entire family, especially if he is the eldest son. His job is to care for not only 
himself, but any siblings and their families, and any of the older generations that are still around. It's an incredible mantle of responsibility that he was stepping into. And because of that, the family, probably his father, would have been very careful to pick another family from whom they would get a spouse for Joseph. And so they had identified Mary's family, and Mary's family had been able to convince Joseph's family that she was pure, that she had not been using her reproductive organs for anybody else, and that everything that she would bear for the family would truly be of Joseph's family. This was very important to them. And so what happened was, all of a sudden, they have these plans. The two of them are betrothed, we're gonna move forward, they're gonna get married, everything's gonna be awesome, and then Mary turns up pregnant. And Joseph has a choice. What do I do? Do I continue with Mary? Or do I set her aside? And really, Joseph could have been very spiteful about it. He could have publicly turned her over so that she could have been stoned to death. He could have humiliated her to the point that it would have been a threat to her life and the unborn child that she was carrying. But our text tells us very clearly that Mary had some kind of compassion from Joseph because he was just going to quietly dissolve the engagement. Just let her go back to her family and no public disgrace, no threat to her being. Just let her go and then his family would find a new bride for him that was better suited and not pregnant with somebody else's child. And life would have gone on. And he would have been well respected in his community and in his family for making that decision. And just when he had decided that he was going to do this as, as quietly and as compassionately as possible for Mary. He goes to bed and has a dream. And we shouldn't be surprised that he has a dream for his namesake from the book of Genesis was known for his dreams. And so Joseph has a dream and in this dream, an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, now that you have made the decision to set her aside, don't do it. Do not be afraid to take her for your wife. And here is why you should be willing to do this because that is not the child of another man that is a child of God. That is the son of God, the son of man, the Messiah. And this child will need you. It's gonna need you to give him his name. It's gonna need you to understand that he is truly the arrival and the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. And you are gonna be the one. Notice in the text, it referred to him as Joseph, son of David. He is the descendant from David, but he is not literally the son of David. And yet, all of this has now been placed before him. And if he does what the angel is saying, if he does what God is asking, then he is effectively turning his back on everything that he has ever known, learned, and loved. He is telling his family that he is going to do something that they believe will bring dishonor to them, that will threaten the line of inheritance. Your firstborn child won't even be yours. And then, not just his parents, but the entire family, the extended family, are going to be so upset with him that they will reject him as if he had never been born. We know this comes to pass because both of the narratives in Matthew and Luke tell us that when they arrived in Bethlehem, there was no place for them to stay. 
Joseph and Mary had arrived in Bethlehem for the census to be counted, as had every single person in Joseph's family. It was the greatest family reunion those people had ever known. They had all come back to Bethlehem, and not one great aunt, not one cousin, not one sibling, not even his parents would give them a place to stay. Even though Mary, who was probably significantly younger than Joseph, great with child, had nowhere safe to lay her head, much less have her child, they would not offer them sanctuary. And so they found themselves in a stable. And that is our nativity story. And Joseph is stuck in this position. By choosing to do what God has asked him to do, he has effectively ostracized himself from his family, from his community, and even from some in his religion. He was just trying to be a good son, a good husband, and a good Jew. And he found himself deleted, completely X'd out of their lives. And so now it's all on him. Mary's probably a teenager. Chances of her being able to do much except just try to safely have a baby are slim. And here he is, charged with protecting his family. He went from a position of high authority and power to one of just trying to find a shelter for them. And it is under these circumstances that our Savior is born. And here in the darkness of a stable, in a town filled with people who no longer consider him theirs, his family truly begins to take shape. And Joseph now has to make a decision about how he's going to live out his place as the head of this new family and what that might look like. If he had rejected Mary, chances are that Mary might not even be alive, nor the child in her womb. But yet, because of Joseph's willingness to believe God over every other voice in his life, to follow what God has asked him to do, we have a nativity. We have a savior. We have the rest of the gospels. We have the rest of the New Testament because one human being chose to believe God over everyone else. Could you imagine if you had made all of your plans? You have saved money, you have done research, you have got everything aligned to go this way, and you are ready and committed to this path, and all of a sudden God shows up and says, hey, we're going that way. And all of your plans are completely useless. Most of us would have what they call a crisis of faith and still do everything in our power to go that way. And that's understandable. Why would you want to take all of your effort and your work and your resources and forsake them? Because it's going to take a lot of faith to go that way. And you're going to have to rely entirely on God. And that's what Joseph had to do. His family would not help him. His people would not even look at him. And he had nothing. He walked away from whatever family resources and wealth they had when he decided to take Mary and her unborn child as his own. That's how he ended up in a stable. But God had promised him, if you do this, 
I will be with you. I will help you take care of the child. And so the Magi arrive in the Gospel account of Matthew. And they don't just arrive, you know, letting Joseph and Mary know, you know what, you're not crazy. Because here are some really well-educated, powerful, influential people that are kneeling before your toddler. But they have come bearing gifts. And they're going to need those gifts because Joseph isn't done hearing crazy ideas from God. Right after the Magi leave, they decide not to go back to Jerusalem through which they have come and go back to King Herod, who is the reigning monarch in the, in the kingdom of Judah. But instead, they decide to go back in just an entirely different way and just avoid this entire hot mess that's happening right now in Jerusalem. And that is that Herod has heard that the king of the Jews has been born. And Herod's feeling is, I'm the king of the Jews. And I'm not going to let some kid be a threat to my power. I have a palace, and I have a kingdom, and I have wealth, and I have a lot of people who fear me, and I don't want to lose that. So he decides that he's going to send and have every child from the age of two through birth murdered in Bethlehem. And once more, God comes to Joseph in a dream through the voice of an angel and says, you have to get up right now and leave. You've got to go to Egypt. Now, if you're Joseph and you've been raised as a good Jew, which Joseph obviously was, you don't want to go to Egypt. That's the worst idea you ever heard. You want me to take my wife and my my new adoptive son, who's less than two years old, and you want me to go back to the country that hates my people so much they enslaved us for 400 years? That sounds like the worst idea ever. That would be like God saying to me, Sarah, I've decided you're going back to New Jersey. (laughs) Not going back there. I did my time. There are wonderful people in New Jersey, I'm sure. I'm just not going back there. And But God says to Joseph, I need you to do this. I've given you gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Sell it, trade it, do whatever you need to do. Get them out of here because Herod is coming to kill them. Get out. And so Joseph, in the middle of the night, has to get them up. Can you imagine trying to get up? Maybe some of you have done this. Trying to get up your spouse and your kid who's under two years old and go anywhere quickly? But he does. He does because that's what God has asked. And he takes them once more under his protection, and he gets them to Egypt, and somehow he manages to fund their sojourn there. And then finally God comes to him again and says, okay, Herod's dead. It's fine. You can come back. But the problem is Herod was dead, but all his sons have now inherited little fiefdoms. And now Joseph has to be like, um, do I go back to Bethlehem? One of his crazy kids is over there. Maybe we shouldn't go back to Bethlehem. Let's go somewhere entirely different. Let's go north. We'll go to Galilee, and we'll settle in this little place called Nazareth, and I will start from scratch. I'll build a whole new life. I've been out of the country. I've been out of circulation. I will start, and I will build from nothing a life for us. That's who Joseph is. He's a person that chose at great self-sacrifice to love someone that everybody said, don't. And he chose to claim someone and her child that everybody said, you will be a laughingstock. You are out of your mind. You have destroyed not only your family, but your future. If you do this, 
but in his heart and in his head and in his very soul, he knew what God wanted him to do. And he did it. And not one of us would be here today if he hadn't. Because Christ would have been under threat if not destroyed. His decision changed everything. To radically love someone. And that's really what sainthood is about. It's about choosing to love someone that you wouldn't normally love, that you wouldn't be drawn to, investing all that you have, your time and your energy, your resources, your love and your forgiveness, your experience with God's grace, putting all of that into somebody else that you don't have to do it. You're going to do it for the people that you already love. You're going to do it for the people that you've grown up for, that you're really closely bonded to, that haven't you know, completely destroyed your relationship with them, that you're biologically related to, that you share some kind of hereditary genes. And you might do it with somebody for whom you are now legally bonded, right? If you've got a spouse or you've got some other guardianship that you have, you might do it for them. But are you going to do it for a total stranger? Are you going to do it for somebody who just happened to kind of like crash into your life? Who happened to sit next to you in a pew? Or in my case, who happened to get assigned to your classroom? When I was in 11th grade, I had a teacher by the name of Miss Oberdick, and she was teaching me US history. And the thing is that Miss Oberdick was so frustrated with me because I wouldn't do my homework. I didn't need to do my homework. I could listen to the lecture. First of all, we're doing US history, and anybody who ever grew up in the Virginia education system knows that most of that is Virginia history. So I was double dipping anyway, and I already knew all this. And so she wanted me to do these big packets of worksheets. I need to do these packets of worksheets. Give me the test, aced every test. But she used to weigh the homework very heavily. And so she said, I'm gonna have to give you a D if you don't start doing your homework. And I was like, challenge accepted. Give me a D. And she would try to get me. I would sit in class and be filling out the homework in the front row filling out the homework, and she's looking down, and I'm doing something or I'm talking to somebody, and she goes, Sarah, and she would ask me a question, what's the name of General Lee's horse? Traveler, you ain't gonna get me. I got this. Take the test, highest grade in the class, zero for homework. We did this dance of agony for four quarters. She ended up giving me a C, which is one of the lowest grades I ever got in high school. She gave me a C. You would have thought she would have been like, thank God she's out of my class. Thank God. But for reasons that are completely insane and irrational, she decided that she was going to put more energy into me. She's an 11th grade history teacher. I'm now a senior in high school. And she says to me, I know that you have an open period, and I want you to come be my teacher's aide. You gave me a C. You want me to come be your teacher's aide? Yep, I want you to be my teacher's aide. Can I get an A doing this? Yes, you can get an A doing this. Do I have to do any homework sheets? No, okay, all right. Now that we've negotiated the terms, I will do this. Signed up to be her teacher's aide. What she didn't tell me was that I was the aide at a time when she didn't have a class. <laughs> it's lunch period. It's one of those weird ones in block scheduling where you show up and you do a little bit of the class or you go to lunch and then you have class or some messed up thing like that. And so I show up, and there's nobody in the room. And I'm like, um, what is this? But you know what she did have? Big old stack of homework packets that needed to be stapled. And she goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit down right here, my old seat, sit down right here. She had a TV there, and she had a VCR. 
And she's like, and we're going to make you watch videos and assemble these packets. Excuse me? I want you to watch these movies and I'll, that I give to you because the block scheduling allowed me to complete a major motion picture. And I want you to staple these packets for me. I'm going to get an A doing this. Yep, you can get an A doing this. Okay, all right, fine. So next thing I know, she goes, I'm going to lunch. And she leaves me there. So I start stapling packets. Cha-ching, cha-ching, my hand hurts. Cha-ching, stapling these packets. She made me watch things that I would never have picked. 1776, sit down, John. No. She made me watch Children of a Lesser God. She made me watch my first encounter with Daniel Day-Lewis. She made me watch Last of the Mohicans. I still watch that one. She made me watch all kinds of movies. And then she started to show me things just when I think like, okay, I understand where you're going with your whole like genre thing here. Then she threw in Mystic Pizza. And I'm trying to figure out where we're going with this. And every time it would end, she would come in for the last five minutes and she'd be like, so tell me what you thought about the movie. And I was like, what is this, cinematography class? What are we doing? But every day that I had her, walked in to a stack of packets that I had to staple. And eventually I said to her, look, I'll watch your movies, but I'm hurting my hand on these packets. I don't like stapling the packets. She said, so figure it out. So I went down to Staples and I bought myself an electric one. <laughs> Bang out those packets in the first 20 minutes of that movie. And that's what I did. And then I started watching the movies even more. And for an entire year, this is how we existed. Her hand-selecting movies that she thought that I needed to be a culturally literate person in the United States, to be a better human being, to be exposed to things that were very different, things that I would never choose. I was like, can't you just give me the matrix? Nope. And so this is what she did. And then, I think really it was just more of a turnabout's fair play, making me staple the packets. But anyway, I must have stapled thousands of packets over the course of that year. I never filled one of them out, but I stapled them all. And I would see 11th graders with these packets, doing these packets, and I'd be like, I made that for you. Suffer. And the thing is, that at the end of that year, something had clicked. At the end of the second go around with Miss Overdick, we had forged a relationship that has never been lost. She has arrived and stayed for both of my weddings, she has sent me presents for the birth of my child. She sends me a Christmas card every year. And she has made it very well known that when her last day comes, I am to officiate her funeral. We are still connected. By a woman that I frustrated for an entire school year, we are still connected. And most of us, when you had realized that I wasn't going to do what you wanted me to do in the way that you wanted me to do it, most people would just wash their hands. They would Pontius pilot you. But she saw something. And maybe she didn't just see something, but she knew that she wanted to see something in me. And she was going to make it happen whether I wanted to go easy or go hard, but I was going. And I am better because of it. I have experiences and conversations and insight that I would never have had if she hadn't put that extra energy into me. She could have gotten somebody else to staple those packets. She could have found some other way to spend her morning besides planning what movie she was going to make me watch for that day. But she was invested in me. And that's what makes a saint. Someone who chooses 
to be invested in somebody that they don't have to be invested in. Being a saint is not about manifesting miracles like we think. The fact that that woman managed to make me do anything that she wanted me to do is probably a miracle. The Pope's not going to agree, but it's probably a miracle. And the fact that she was able to enlighten me and change my mind, she set me up for success in college where I thrived. One, I didn't have homework. But two, because she had given me this breadth of insight and experience from which I continually draw. And I recognize that just because I don't have an instant attraction to something doesn't mean that I shouldn't look closer. She taught me that. And she taught it by making me live it every time I was with her. Now, a lot of people who know Ms. Oberdick might not think of her as a saint. They might think of her as a, a masochist for teaching kids as long as she did. But for any of us that had a kid stay home in the pandemic, you know that teachers are saints. You know that somebody that would choose to take your child, not just your child, but dozens of others, is truly a blessing. But the church is called to the same thing. And we aren't called just to take little cute kids. We're called to take children of every age, every generation, because every one of us is a child of God. To take them and invest in them, and to choose to be authentic and vulnerable with them, to be honest and open, to share with them what we have gained, to share with them what we have learned from our failures, to give the best part of ourself for them. There is nothing more Christ-like than that. To give the best part of you for another. Jesus died for countless human beings, most of whom don't even recognize his name and don't care about who he is. But he died for them. And he died for those of us who do worship and adore his name and care very profoundly for him that we might share that with another. And a lot of times we look at who the saints are, those canonized saints, and we think, there's no way I could be like that. And you're probably right. The Catholic Church has a way of reinforcing who its saints are. Most of them were clergy. Most of them had come from strong Catholic backgrounds and continued in their Catholic background. I don't know the last time they uh, canonized a Methodist. But God is canonizing Methodist saints all the time. God is telling you and me and Christians just like us that you can make a difference. And any time you choose to put what you have on the line for somebody else, then you are knocking at the door of sainthood. And when you look and you actually read the Bible, there's no perfect people to be found in there except Jesus. There's no perfect people in there. None at all. And the ones who really seem perfect have small bios. Instead, it's about what they were willing to do, to radically love, to radically give, to follow God radically, not to follow the status quo. The status quo meant that Jesus would never have been of the house of David. The status quo meant that Mary might have died before her 20th birthday 
never having given birth to her child. The status quo meant that Christianity would have been entirely derailed, if not defunct, if Joseph had done what the world said Joseph should be doing. Thank God he listened to God more. When was the last time we confronted that reality? What is it that God is asking you to do? Not asking you in this generic, you know, what does God require of me, you know, to love justice, do kindness, you know, that sort of thing. Not that. What is God asking of you right now? Who is it that God is placing in your sphere of influence that God needs from you? Because every single person in the church of all ages has something that they can do something that they can give of themselves. And when you do that, you show more Jesus Christ than all the stained glass windows, than all the Renaissance art, than all of the passion of the Christ ever could. You show the world radical love and acceptance. You show the world forgiveness, because if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody, you're going to have to learn forgiveness. You're going to show them grace. And there is nothing more grace-filled than deciding that you are going to give of yourself for somebody and get nothing in return. Susan Euthid Haynes Oberdick has put more into me than I will ever be able to do for her. Ever. And she didn't just do it for me, she did it for other people. And she did that selflessly. She didn't do it because one day I might grow up and have a really successful enterprise and be able to buy her a house. She didn't do it because I would choose to adopt her and take care of her in her old age and she just broke a hip. She didn't do it for that. She did it because she believed that when you invest in a human being, you make the most godlike investment that you will ever make. And in a world that talks about legacy and endowment, legacy and endowment are human things. Do you endow another person with your experience of God? Is your legacy that people will stand up on the day when they honor your life and testify that you showed them time and time again that Jesus Christ is still very much alive and with us? That is our legacy. And that is what we are trying to endow. And if you ever wonder, who can I ask for help to get to that point? Well, obviously, you can ask God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But you have a saint right here who lived it out. And the only thing we really know about him is that he chose to turn his back on anything and everyone that wanted him to pick them over God. That's what we know. And every day, these two probably get down on their knees in hyperbole and thank God that he did. And when all of your days are done, and you, like all the rest of us, are resurrected at the kingdom to come, don't you want to be there to see the look on Joseph's family's face when they recognize that that child is sitting on the throne? That is the one, the one you wanted me to forsake, the one you wanted me to abandon, the one that you wanted me to cut off. 
He is on the throne. And won't they be absolutely mesmerized to realize that he on the throne is willing to forgive them but we won't get to tell people that story unless we invest in them and it starts today you can be what miss Oberdick has been and still is to me and always will be you can be the person that looks at another human being, another beloved child of God, another being of sacred worth, and choose them. May it be so, for you have been chosen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.